spiritual gifts and you. How do you know which gifts are yours? Well, let's talk about that next. So what is your spiritual gift or gifts? And how do you know? What are some ways that we can find out what our gifts are? Well, hi there and welcome. Let's talk about that. In fact, we'll help you out along the way. We're in chapter 12 of Romans, verses 4 through 8, looking at these spiritual gifts. Today's message is called Spiritual Gifts and You. From Valley Bible Church in Hercules, let's catch up with our teacher and pastor, Phil Howard, here in Romans chapter 12, as we take a look at Spiritual Gifts and You. With today's edition of Truth For Today, here's Pastor Phil Howard. I want to look at uh, why God saved you. Spiritual gifts are dealt with here, but there's three things I want us to consider as we look at verses 4 through 8. That Let's get the picture. From Romans 1, God visits the rubbish heap of humanity that is in ruin and in rebellion against God. And he said, my wrath is going to come on these people. If I, if I eliminate all of them, they would get what they deserve. So you don't want justice with God. You want grace. You don't want what you deserve. Right? You want, you want grace. So for 11 chapters, he describes this mercy project of God where he's sparing people from what they deserve. And so after he describes this for 11 chapters... He now starts settling down to say in chapter 12, let me tell you why I show mercy on you and how I've designed you to function now that you are no longer a vessel of wrath, but you become a vessel of mercy. I've poured my grace into you. I've had mercy on you. And so he starts out chapter 12 by saying, because I've been merciful to you, do this for me. Please make yourself available to me. Would you make your life available? It's wasted. It was uh, under wrath. Uh, You were living in vanity. You were being spent for a thousand different sins. All I'm asking you, would you become available to the source of mercy, Jesus Christ? Would would you be available? He's saying that. And uh, then he goes on to say, and by the way, Now that you're a vessel of mercy, I've restored your mind that was wasted. You'd blown it in sin. He uses words in Romans 1. It was moronic. It was empty. It was void. It was worthless towards God. Well, I've done a renewal job in saving you. I've restored your mind so that you can now uh, relatively understand me. You can discern God's will. You'll find out it's good, it's perfect, and it's acceptable. And so it's a beautiful thing that we are restored people as vessels of mercy, discovering the wonderful thing of the will of God, the will that we were rebelling against, the will that we didn't want to have anything to do with. Now we're experientially finding out why the will of God is good. (laughs) The will of God's perfect. The will of God, this is the greatest thing there is. What was my problem? Well, I need to be renewed. I need to come to Christ. Then he says, the renewed mind uh, will never make you proud. And so he warns you, don't carry any attitudes of arrogance. That, that goes into the face of God's mercy towards you. 
And so he says in verse 3, For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. And I take the measure of faith not to be how much he dispensed to you individually, but what is the faith we're measured by? It's measured by Christ. He's the object of our faith. Have the humility of the Savior you put your faith in. Let him be your measurement. And so let that shrink your head up. Let that turn you into a servant and not into an arrogant person. Because I don't care what spiritual gift, as we study this, that you think you have. If arrogance controls your thinking, you already will be shelved. It doesn't matter what you think it is. You may think you're an apostle, but we'll never hear from you because God will shelve you. Because humility is necessary to be the servant God wants us to in the body. So one of our great enemies in the new life is God, deliver me from arrogance. Deliver me from thinking too highly of myself. So he he addresses that. Then he starts something that I want to look at three things today that we as vessels of mercy have found, number one, a place to belong in Christ. Notice that. He says, just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not have all the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. I just want to just say something. If you wanted to ask someone in the New Testament, what does it mean to be a Christian? They could say, in Christ. And what does it mean to be in Christ? Well, I was an object of the wrath of God, but now that I've come to put faith in Christ, I have been located, and 1 Corinthians says, the Spirit of God immersed you into Christ so that your new identity before God is not your sins, uh, is not your past, is not your ethnicity, is not your gender, not your economic status. For Galatians says, in Christ, there's neither male nor female, there's neither bond nor free, Uh, There's neither Jew nor Gentile. Uh, You really are still Jewish. You really are still a male or female, but not in God's sight. Your identity, as he says, I've clothed you with Christ so that I look on these vessels of mercies just like I look on my son. It's called acceptance. It's uh, guilt should be the past for the Christian. It's a terrible thing to be living with guilt as a Christian because you contradict every message we preach. You contradict the gospel. You're saying the cross wasn't big enough to deal with whatever you're guilty about. You insult the cross because your sin is a special kind. Well, you don't know what I did, and you don't know what Christ did. If you knew what he did, you wouldn't be building your life around what you did. But you don't know how bad I was, and you don't know how bad the cross was. 
But you know, I, I just, it haunts me every day. Uh, he said, I cast it away as far as the east is from the west. It does not exist for you. It's behind you. You're in Christ. You found the city of refuge. I'm in Christ. It seems too good to be true. But vessels of mercy, he says, you have found a home. I think of us who were vessels of wrath and children of wrath by nature, the Bible says. So all we had coming on us was wrath. And I think of Christ when it says, I'm in Christ. Uh, If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Carolyn's people grew up in Nebraska. Uh, And we have pictures uh, of the Kettner side of uh, a bunch of German farmers uh, in Nebraska, uh, lived in sod huts. Temperatures would drop uh, 15, 20 degrees below, you know, zero, be terribly cold. Uh, Nebraska is cold country, no heater, no running water, outhouses that you could be frozen in a storm by the time you got there and got back terrible conditions. And one of the terrible plights of living in the prairies was prairie fires. Because there was no fire department and there were no water hoses and there were no water lines. So how do you beat a prairie fire sweeping through miles, coming towards the barn, coming towards your house? How do you beat it? One of the most common things they invented was backfire. We've got to get far enough from the house, start another fire, and hope that it burns toward it, or at least burn off enough around the place. And I would have been to my aunt's place in Oklahoma where they they would start fires, take gunny sacks and buckets of water, and we'd beat them out. So you build just a little fire wall, as it were, burn off everything around the house so fire wouldn't come up against it. That's why California and the Oakland Hills were so vulnerable. They hadn't burned all the brush, and we had that terrible fire. It just swept through there, nothing to stop it. Well, in the prairie states, they learned to backfire all the time. So guess what? Fire could be going all around, all around you, but if you were in the burn-off spot, you were safe. And God has let all of his wrath and all the fire of hell passed over his son on the cross. It passed by. And now he tells you, guess what? I'm going to place you in my son. And all my wrath against you has already passed over him. So all your sins are past. But what if I sin tomorrow? I hate to tell you this because you're going to for sure want to do it. It's been paid for. Is that true? Now, does that double your desire to want to do it? Thank you. The grace of God won't make you want to do it. But I'm safe. No sin will ever reach me. No sin. No condemnation. I have found a home in Jesus. I'm home. You see, when we get to heaven, nothing will be new except your body will have caught up with your position and you will see with your eye 
him whom you trusted. But everything will be the same in your stand. He said, Ooh, I finally now get to look on him. I've been in him. I've been getting the benefits all this time. But now I get to see him on the throne and will spend all eternity worshiping the Lamb. He said, I've been in him for a long time. I'm in you. I'm in you. I'm in you. We are in Christ because mercy found us. And he says that over and over. Then he says something that now that you're in Christ, you don't just sit around and whittle. Uh, he designed you in this family, and he calls it the body. He never says church, but that's the language, Ephesians, the church, which is his body. And watch what he says. Each one of us uh, has a body. We have many members. We all don't have the same function. And then he says, uh, each member belongs to all the others. So we have a place to belong and we have a place to function. And he says something that's remarkable here. Uh, this language that we all belong to the others. Look around you. If this verse is correct, every person in here that's a believer, if this was the local body you call home, you belong to everybody in this room. Kind of scary, isn't it? Anybody need your lawn mowed? Uh, look at that. Uh, we all, the only other place this language is used is of marriage in 1 Corinthians 7. And it speaks of conjugal relationships, and it speaks of the man-woman relationship. And it says something that's even hard in marriage when you first hear it. It says, your body is mine. Oh, no, it's not. My body is yours. That's what he says biblically. And getting that figured out in marriage is a, is a hard adjustment. And that you don't always get to say, no, I want to do this. Somewhere the, the two wills have to come together and the sharing has to come together somewhere because eventually what marriage is all to be doing is uh, my body is for what your body needs. Your body's for what I need. So we're in this together to achieve uh, whatever it takes two bodies to accomplish. And we don't get the privilege of no, no, no. And it's not, I don't think, just conjugally, but I think it takes in our life. That's married life. We've got two, two people on the project. Uh, men learn to clean house, right? I do the worst every Thursday and Friday. I learned that because Carolyn abandoned me and went to Kauai to be with Deborah, and I learned to do the worst. Because they're just Liz and I, and I got tired of underwear that were dirty, so I learned to do the worst. I called her to Kauai. I said, how do you do the worst? She said, you twist, you push, and you pour in. And I've been doing it ever since. I study downstairs. Well, nothing wrong with that. But you know what? She gets under me about I wash and dry, and I leave them there. She said, it is not done until they're folded and put in the drawer. I said, well, be thankful you got 50%, honey. She said, fold. I said, I don't like to fold underwear. You know what I do with her undies? I throw them all over her side of the bed. You fold them. I ain't folding that. Uh-uh. Get all that Victoria's Secret away from me. I fold my stuff. Two bodies for one assignment. And so he says, in the body of Christ, you are made to function 
uh, in a one another uh, capacity. And this is a remarkable statement, and it's really hard on American Christians who are independent to the core. I need nobody. I don't even know my neighbors because I have a garage door opener that lets me in and out. And I don't even have to know them. And um, I think what he's saying here is you've been put into a divine community. And let me say this. Your Christian life, you will never make radical changes in your Christian life without being in community with believers. You can never know God as well as you could by yourself. If you were saved and say on an island, there is so much about you that would never change. Because God changes us in community. I'm of the persuasion that the book of Proverbs, the measure of wisdom in the book of prime, uh, in Proverbs is primarily relational skills. That wisdom is manifested by how we recognize people's characters. We know who the fools are. We know who the wise are. We know who the angry are. We know who the seductive person is. And we know relational skills, and we get it from divine wisdom. So in the body, we're a divine community. We're sharing with a membership class, which was a wonderful group yesterday, uh, a book by James Hunter that he wrote called The Death of Character. It's a negative uh, diagnosis of the American education system. It, he's a, a sociologist at Virginia University. And what he did is that we found out that in the 60s and 70s, we threw out sexual mores. Morals went by the way. We burnt bras and we burnt morals. We, nobody tells us what to do. There's no boundaries for sexuality. So we got rid of all of that in the 60s and 70s. What happened is what happened in the moral realm in this matter of sexuality, in the 90s, we found out we had done the same thing in business ethics with the downfall of Enron, finding out white-collar crime that we could rob 10,000 people of their retirement plan while we were handing out $130 million bonuses to the executives. And all of a sudden, America says, wait, you mean you could rip off America in the name of white-collar crime? Are there no ethics? Is there nothing to govern us? And it's much of what's going on today. We're bailing out banks while people lose their homes. The banker will be rescued much more than the man that loses his home. It's just a fact of life. Well, Baker did this study, and uh, he studied the curriculum because after all of this stuff, curriculum started coming out by William Bennett, uh, James Dobson, other groups, and they said, we've got to teach uh, absolute ethics uh, in schools, primarily the money angle more than sexuality. Money. We've got to get some right and wrong here, some absolutes. So Hunter studied whether the experiment was having any effect, if it changed anything, and what he found out, it absolutely changed no one. Teach it all day in public schools or wherever. It doesn't make you moral. It doesn't make you have ethics. It doesn't make you have... Uh, convictions or be courageous. 
the, the primary model that was picked for 20 years of character was Martin Luther King. And Hunter studied him. And he said what all of these studies ignored is that King was the product not of a school curriculum. He was the product of a tight-knit community down there with his dad's church where he grew up, Birmingham, and with the African-American community that had a theology of Exodus that someday we're going to cross over. Someday we're going to leave these burdens behind. We're going to get liberated someday. We're going to be able to vote someday. We're going to be able to be called a decent name someday. And they had this uh, theology, this common suffering, this common heritage. And they found out King was the product of community. The church, the aunties, the uncles, the neighbors. Because, as Hunter brings out, we used to be people of very few circles of community. Uh, let's say uh, you went to school with a guy that became your banker. Uh, you did business with someone that your dad had known for 20 years. So when you went to the general store, your dad knew Mr. Smith for 20 years. It was like a family name. You went to church with everybody that knew you. Why? I've been teaching you since you were in the third grade. And, and, and all the sisters in the church became nannies practically and aunts. And they'd tell your mama if you misbehaving in church. And they could smack you. Because my folks gave people permission. You get them if they act misbehave, and I'll get them when I pick them up. <laughs> you didn't grow up. No, you grew up that way, did you? My brother and his wife, when they sent church, had three boys, and Sylvia had a short little strap. Boom. Don't move, boy. And we got brats running everywhere. In some places. And they found out that King was the product of a mom, dad, church, community. And they said, wow, a curriculum didn't produce his outlook, his right to justice and courage to march and courage to speak up. And, and then they all said, he was a product of community. And you look at your life. Maybe before Christ, if you came from an unsaved home, you instinctively acted like one of your parents. Or whoever the models you were around, aunties, uncles, whatever, you, you emulate them. And then you get into the body of Christ. And I really thank the Lord I was saved in a small church. You know why? Everybody knew you. Well, there's only about 60 of us. And sometimes I just saw that church a few weeks back, the building, and I thought, how much I learned about serving God in this small little church. I mean, small potatoes. Just nothing significant. But I learned to give. I learned to pray. I learned to shake hands. I learned to love the sisters. I learned to love the gray-headed mothers in the church. It, it was family. And we bounced off of each other. And, and we prayed for each other. And uh, we cared about one another. And one of the deaths of American church life is we want to belong to something we don't want anyone knowing us. And we don't want anyone to have a hunting permit to get into our life and say, hey, have you been praying? It's none of your business. Oh, wait, wait, you belong to me and I belong to you. Well, it's none of your business. Oh, yes, it is. Well, look at the verse. You don't believe me. You're just saying that because you don't, you think I'm going to get you. Look, 
So in Christ, we who are many form one body and each member belongs to all the others. Closing out our time together today here in Romans chapter 12, this is Truth For Today, and you're listening to Pastor Phil Howard as we work our way through the book of Romans. To contact us, if you have a question, prayer request, maybe you would like to order a copy of today's broadcast or the set today's message was taken from. All of these resource materials are available from us. You need only call or write to us. Now, there are a couple of ways to write. First, you can write to 1511 M. Sycamore Avenue, Suite 278. That is here in Hercules. The zip code is 94547. The other way to write to us would be through our website. Stop by and then drop us an email. We are at valleybible.org. Again, you'll find us on the web at valleybible.org. We'll have not only the resource materials from today's broadcast and the series, but others as well, plus information about Valley Bible Church, who we are, what we believe, and an opportunity to join us for worship. Again, you'll find it all at valleybible.org. If you're calling, our phone number is 855-833-9864. Now, for a copy of today's program, simply mention the date of the broadcast. If you would like the series today's broadcast was taken from, ask for it by name, Living Sacrifice, Serving One Another. We ask for a gift of $15 or more for this resource. And again, any amount you give above and beyond the cost of these resource materials will go directly to the radio broadcast as we are listener-supported here on KFAX. Please bear that in mind as you contact us. Now, we also have the entire eight-set, 47 sermons in all in the Book of Romans for a gift of $100 or more. Mention that when you contact us if that's of interest to you. And then come back and join us next time for another broadcast of Truth For Today with Pastor Phil Howard. 